0: There, Gen Xers. Welcome to Gen X Talking. In today's episode, Ed and I are going to review an an important and timely set of ideas around active shooters or active assailant type of scenarios. Before we we do, Ed, welcome back to the United States of America.
1: Thank you. It's good to be
0: back. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Greatest, by far the greatest country in the world. And if you don't believe so, I invite you to do some
0: international traveling right now. I saw an interesting TikTok on that uh, recently. He claims to be conservative. He starts his conservative rant about it. The United States is not the greatest country in the world. Okay, then which country is? (laughs) I mean, come on. Canada? Really? What country? Australia? Which one? Egypt? Egypt? No. (laughs) Anyways, enough about that. Hey, I know we talked about this a bit on the phone when you were traveling and such, but do you want to share just a little bit about what we're going to be talking about? What you might have planned for the next episode or so around your international trip to Egypt? Yeah,
1: sure. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be back. I appreciate the welcome back. Appreciate your friendship and partnership. And I'm excited for this episode that you've got on active shooter. In the next episode, I wanna do a short, maybe 30 minutes or so on what the revelations and discoveries of our trip to Egypt were. And it's gonna be focused on the tourist aspect of the entertainment and excitement and travel, that experience, but also we're gonna have some focus on travel during COVID and safety and security throughout your travel, especially to a country like Egypt, which is considered by the United States State Department to be a high-risk country, especially terrorism.
0: Well, that should be very cool. I'm looking forward to that one. I did have a number of questions for you still, and I'm really looking forward to circling back up with, uh, with Chris Klein. Yeah. Hoping we can find some time in the next uh, maybe month or so and and get him on the show as well. Yeah, and
1: we're in close communication with Chris and uh, he's finally, I believe he's back in the U.S. Okay. And just a day or two ago when he was telling us, I'm fi- I'm leaving Egypt finally, he said, I'm just done with this country. Hey,
0: man, I mean, I was done with the Philippines too after just a couple of days. So, and, uh, and of course, I went to Mumbai, India and oh. that place, I spent 10 days in, in Kazakhstan and absolutely loved it. And would love to go back. I went from the airport to the hotel in India and said, I've had enough. I'm ready to go home. There's some places that can just tweak you. And I'm not saying that's again, that's not to say anything bad about the Indian people I'm sure in some places, they're just absolutely wonderful people. It's just a completely different culture and not my style. That would be Cairo, except I would caveat that
1: it is the people. People are not good people, period. They're just not good people. And it's a cultural thing. It's, you can see it's just prevalent throughout the fabric of their society.
0: I was traveling internationally a lot during this time. I was I was talking with this guy. I had just been to Mumbai. I was there for maybe three, four days total. And I called him and I asked him afterwards. I said, I don't understand how you can come from that place, Mumbai, India, and have any hope in the world any hope at all, because he was a great guy, super nice guy, really helpful. And he said, this is the shame of our culture. People will live in a walled off palace in Mumbai. They will climb over the trash and people to get into their Mercedes Benz car, air conditioned and everything. They'll climb over people and stomp on them to go off to work in their nice air conditioned corner office. Mm-hmm. And not care a lick. I just don't understand that. <laughs> I met a variety of people like that from different
1: areas to include Cairo. Met one from port of prince No. Maybe. You got the, the living conditions as they are. And these gems of human beings come out here to the U.S. And they'll say, we've got some work to do in port of prince We've got some work to do in Cairo. We've got some work to do in in (laughs) Mumbai or other places. Some work to do. (laughs) We have some improves. We don't have many sustains, but we have a lot of improves to work on. It's an interesting dynamic. Sure, it's a dog-eat-dog world, but even some of those richer people like that guy, they've got this type of job, they've got this type of house, and they just walk through trash and over people to to do whatever they do, but you have some that, End up uh, breaking that cycle of madness and, and get out coming, of it. Yeah. Coming to the worst country on the planet, the United States, where they can shine and <laughs> flourish.
0: Su- yes,
1: where they can <laughs> succeed and be the happy, decent, good human being that they're destined to be instead yeah. of having to live in that kind of squalor and condition that the United States didn't impose upon these people, by the way. This right. It's just something that it's just life. Life happened. And in those civilizations, they have lagged behind as far as spiritual and emotional development and being a basic good human being.
0: Well, I don't want to get too political here, but if you take certain views of our leftist friends, then they would blame that on British imperialism. These are the same kind of people that would
1: say, I was a former socialist and we got in our little group and we went down to Havana, Cuba. Yeah. And when we got there and we saw that this is the way they were living, we were literally shocked to the core of our soul.
0: Well, Hey, let's get to this show. Let's talk about mass shootings and active shooter. Wow. What a topic
1: it's a very timely topic because the corporate America is going to be going back into their workspaces. And you may be a hybrid model now or for a while, or you may be a hybrid model permanently. Maybe it's going to be
0: going into the office two to three days out of the week, but you're going back to work, America. It's getting there. For today's show, I thought we'd spend a bit of time digging into those details around active shooters and mass shootings. And there's a difference between the two that we'll talk a little bit about. That a lot of people just kind of gloss over. I recently attended a webinar presented by a team of people. They call themselves subject matter experts. These were joint terrorism task force folks. Yeah. These are people who have responded to multiple mass shooting events. So there were a lot of very, very experienced people in large events such as these. Some were FBI, some were CIA, some were former FBI and, and now run a more commercial organization, it was an excellent presentation. It flowed in a really clear pattern of preparation, action, and recovery. And this is what a person or organization business can go through to try to reduce casualties or just simply never have to experience this in their life. It hit me while we were in the middle of that webinar that our audience Primarily being Gen Xers, they're perfect beneficiaries for the information. Many of us were in positions of management, leadership of some sort, maybe executives within the organization, maybe even business owners, and so we're in a perfect s- situation that we can in effect change upon our organizations, upon the people around us to keep them safe. I'll, I'll break down each as we go through the the discussion today, but wanted to share some initial thoughts first. I wanted to quickly define those two terms, separating out mass shooter and active shooter. And they gave us a list of all these different organizations and how they define mass shooting. Generally, it is agreed that it is four or more people are shot or killed in one incident, excluding the perpetrator at one location and roughly at the same time. And then to clarify that there is a difference between mass shootings and active shooter, active shooter being effectively a person in the act of shooting, intending to cause harm. And, and I want to, I want to also use the term active assailant. Yeah. Because as we know, it could be a knife has in Europe, right? Yeah. There's
1: been a number of incidents in Europe that kind of slowed down greatly. At about 2016 or so. Yeah. But uh, you had the Barcelona incident where somebody's driving through the crowd. You had a exactly. suicide bombing, I believe it was at the Ariana Grande concert in uh, London. You had stabbings constantly. Adam. Interestingly enough, it, there was a spat of them in Germany in about 2014, I believe it was. Stabbings by migrants from the Syria region. Yeah. Stabbing people on the bus and train shouting Allahu Akbar, but the German government refused
0: to say it was terrorism. The truth of the matter is nobody knows how they're going to respond until they're faced with it. Depending on the situation, there was a video that they showed in this presentation where he was an off-duty security guard in this building. And this guy walks in with a shotgun and starts blasting away. The off-duty security officer, Mm -hmm. flip flops and shorts. But he happens to be in an office right behind where the guy just walked in the door. So he blasts a couple of shots and immediately the dude jumps out from behind him, takes him down, smashes him into the floor, removes him of his shotgun because the guy was in the middle of reloading. He runs back into the office to start calling you know, police. So before the police were even called, he took out the shooter. He didn't realize that the guy had a handgun in his boot. And you Mm. can see in the video, he reaches down and grabs the handgun. So the guy comes running back up, takes him down again, (laughs) smashes him again and chokes him out and holds him down until the on-duty security guard gets there. Every situation is different and yeah, yeah. you can
1: see it happen. And every time we see it in the news, most people probably say, oh my God, how can this happen? Some other people might think, well, if, if it was me. I think I would have done this, but Mm. that's just for that one particular scenario. Hopefully it never happens to us, but if it does, it's not going to be like what you saw in the news the last 10 times. It's going to be a completely new scenario. (laughs)
0: So we were given some statistics and this, I'll go through them kind of quickly, but they're mainly related to mass shootings. The majority of mass shootings targeted people they knew, family, friends, coworkers, about 57%. And, and I'm actually a bit surprised because in all the previous presentations that I have seen, and I've seen probably 10, 12 different presentations on active shooters, the way people in law enforcement conveyed the messaging is it's Mostly, almost always people that they know. Maybe this is the separation between mass shooter and active shooter, because active shooting has a different set of rules. It's just for some reason, law enforcement, when they're giving presentations, they tend to meld these two together. But I think it gets confusing for some people. When it comes to mass shootings, about 61% occurs in the home yeah and and then another 10% on top of that in public areas but still close to home so really 71% happened in or near the home
1: sorry let me ask you a quick question did they give you a statistic as to what percentage of that is a domestic situation
0: yeah a lot of them yeah. were domestic situations again mass shooting type of events and as you would expect the vast majority are males about yeah. about 94% what's interesting here is Many of the folks that were responsible for mass shootings were actually prohibited from owning guns.
1: This is a really important point, Matt, because this is something that the states have done a long time ago, starting in the 90s, I believe, especially if it was a domestic violence situation. A lot of the states changed their statutes about domestic violence to where previously, The law said if it was spousal abuse, a husband and a wife, number one, they changed it to where domestic violence can be any household member, ex-friends, ex-roommates, whatever. So they changed that ruling. And then number two, if it meets certain criteria and you plead guilty, no contest or you're found guilty. In most jurisdictions, you can no longer possess, own, buy a firearm. You can't reload. You can't own ammo. In some jurisdictions, you can't own a a bow and arrow. So it's interesting that you're saying that this percentage of it is domestic. Yeah. Well, this percentage of it is people that are known and then of those
0: percentages, The person wasn't even supposed to have a firearm. I think the thing that makes it even more interesting to me is that that's the argument that some people use against ownership of guns is, well, mass shootings and active shooters. People who legally obtain guns are not the people who go out and necessarily commit these atrocities. It's just a false argument to me.
1: It's just one of those slippery slopes. It's a flawed logic.
0: Okay. So speaking of gun laws and such. Any guesses which states have the most active shooter incidents?
1: Oh, I would say states that have a higher percentage of gun restrictions, such as, oh, maybe New York, Maryland, California, places like that, maybe.
0: Very, very close. (laughs) California. Mm -hmm. And we'll just call it Chicago.
1: Hey, it's against the law to own firearms in those places,
0: guys. Yeah. Didn't you you read the rules? It's so safe here. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So California, now uh, the two runners up actually are Texas and Florida. So it it was interesting, but the numbers are twice as many events occurred in California. Twice as many events occurred up in Chicago. I'm just going to say Chicago because Illinois, it's just Chicago because that's where all the statistics are. At least the bad statistics.
1: I mean, oh. Texas and Florida, though, you have a, a lot of people that legally own firearms and especially considering active or mass shooters, you probably have a good percentage of domestic issues, probably some other cultural dynamics going on in Chicago that are different than some things going on in L.A. or California, those areas. A lot of it could be gang violence that's very similar, but you still may not be cons- comparing apples to apples. In Texas and Florida, you're probably looking at quite a few different variables that's just not
0: the same. Yeah, very, very different. I think maybe the contributors to the presentation were trying to keep it as balanced as they could. Yeah. If, the last thing I would point out is about 81% was handguns, not necessarily rifles, anything like that. But-
1: well, ease of access and ease of carrying,
0: concealing, and transporting. So do you think that the trend for these type of events, mass shootings, active shooters, is going up or down over the last couple of years?
1: The last couple of years, I would guess that it's going down
0: a little bit. That's absolutely wrong. Oh, no, I'm wrong. When you look at the numbers, I think the numbers that they had captured up to this point was July of 21. So that's Last year, halfway through the second year of the pandemic. And it was more than it was in 2020. It's interesting that through COVID, I thought there was an increase
1: in suicides, but I didn't know that there was an increase in actual. Yeah. Mass shootings. Wow.
0: So at this point, I just wanted to break down the first section. And again, that's preparation, that's action and it's recovery. So the first one being preparation. If we take some time and we just learn about the incidents themselves, this will help us become more prepared for when it actually occurs, right? For instance, in 2020, out of all the active shooter events, now, again, this is active shooter events. Out of 37 events, 24 were in commercial locations, 10 more were in open public spaces.
1: So it's rarely occurring although there's something about domestic
0: on the mass shooters, active shooters are occurring more of a public commercial and public. So if you are a business owner out there, if you're an executive or even just in leadership in a business or in a house of worship, this is where these events are occurring. You can immediately then
1: assess right away that your space is at a higher risk than most others. Yes. Although it may be very rare,
0: statistically, you're at higher risk in these spaces. Because you run a place of business or you're, you're in a place of business or worship, you have a much, much higher likelihood of going through an event like an active shooter event. Okay. What's even more interesting, Ed, is once you see the statistics of the place had no security, had Mm -hmm. minimal security, Mm -hmm. and had a lot of security, obvious, clear security available. It is significant to say the least. I think it was about 59 or 60% occurred where there is no security. Sure. Another 20% where there's minimal security. And then of course, almost none occurred where there is security available. So that's number one for a business owner. If you're wanting to avoid these types of events from occurring, basically feet on the ground, you have some sort of physical security. You don't necessarily have to hire guards all the time, but badges for your front door. If you yeah. just have a badge and train people on no tailgating, don't let people tailgate in behind you. Just have a badge at the door. If you if you have a badge door, then people can't get in. And that's a simple way to secure your building from people coming in. Yeah, that
1: kind of is restrictive for certain levels of business owners. But I mean, I feel super safe where I'm at. You know, my friend Nick out there in Albuquerque, he's a captain now, I believe, or he's a lieutenant at the very least. He was working some years ago in one location where he said he was tasing people several times a week. (laughs) So I asked, I mean, we're talking about differences in demographics here. And I asked this Plano officer out of curiosity and said, how, I see you got a taser. How often do you have to use a taser? He said, the worst we get is a couple of these urban cowboys get to drinking and they get in yeah. a fight. That's yeah. about it.
0: I, I fear though, Ed, that some people have that level of security and it's false security. Mm-hmm. It, it, again, three active shooter events occurred in Texas. Texas is a big place, you know, so it's huge. The likelihood of active shooter occurring in texas in your area but also i think it's pretty clear everybody knows that there's a lot of people that carry guns and so there's a lot less likelihood that they're gonna try to go into a situation thinking that they're going to live and start shooting people you know they're going into it to also probably commit suicide you know because they're they realize that if i go in and i start shooting probably someone around me is going to start shooting back.
1: <laughs> That's an interesting thing to consider because the, a lot of the workplaces, like one of the workplaces I'm familiar with, we have armed security guards there. And uh, a lot of them are veterans, so they're either military veterans or they're law enforcement veterans. you can tell just by the way they carry themselves. Yeah, We've got those kind of guys. as just security in some of the work locations that I've seen out here. So yeah. It's, An interesting consideration that we could be in a false sense of safety and security and not realize if somebody does come in, this person is likely considering this is his
0: final act. There is this process that the mass shooters and active shooters go through where they perform some intelligence, some surveillance. They have this broad review of attack targets, and then they eventually filter it down to a key target that they're interested in, and then they start doing more surveillance on just that specific target, right? Yeah. They all do it. Every single one of them follow this pattern. But they also have it, some sort of motive. Well, I'm not going to say that they do, but that is a, as you would expect, there are a lot of people who have some tie disgruntled employee, right, something to that point. Yes. Yeah. But that's not always the case. It's not. It's not necessarily like an eighty twenty rule. It's like a fifty fifty rule. Okay. You know. So, n- uh, unlike mass shootings, what which are vast majority in the home, mm-hmm. when it comes to active shooters, not necessarily. It's more like fifty fifty. Okay. So, because because what happens is they get so worked up in their mind that I just want to go inflict damage on people because yeah. I've been wronged. And so they've got this mental problem in their head that's causing all this to occur and they're just acting on it. And right?
1: they so, certainly haven't obviously thought it all the way through because when they initiate it, they could be operating off of emotion and maybe a little bit of it adrenaline. And then it, once it's initiated, that's probably when they say, oh, I've really screwed up and now I need to yeah. take my own life because there's no other way out.
0: Yeah. Or death by cop or whatever it might be. That's yeah. Easy. That's exactly right. You know what? That
1: right there, Matt, we, we have to talk about that and we have to stamp our foot on the ground or pound our fist on the desk three times. I have never seen media talk about suicide by cop and it is a real condition. And if you're going to get on a traffic stop and you're disgruntled and you're tired of the police, I don't know what the percentage or the statistics are, but there's people that are just screw it. And sometimes they get talked down, but police have to use deadly force against somebody that's pointing a firearm at them. And even a knife, you're watching the video armchair quarterbacking it a a week or two later, and you say, you know what? I think he's trying suicide by cop. Maybe they didn't need to shoot him. Well, when you're the police officer right there on the ground, and you're within six feet of somebody with a knife or gun. Yeah, your mission as a, pol- a police have a right to live. Yeah, they have a right to go home to, to give their wife and kids. kids. Yes. Yeah, so they they can't second guess this and be, you know what? Maybe I think this guy's not going to stab me with that knife. Yeah, right. it's it's a sad reality.
0: I, I can. What did they say? Just just shoot the knife out of their hand. Oh, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> And I'll tell you what. Try I, it someday, man.
1: Try it. I'm a fifth award Marine rifle expert and a fifth award pistol expert. And I took the pistol range at the law enforcement academy. I will tell you, I'm a good shot. Mm. When I get practiced up again, I'm shot in a, a few months maybe. But when I get practiced up again, I'll show you my targets and I can, I can right. drive attack. Yeah. But I cannot shoot the knife out of somebody's hand, especially if he's waving that knife like this.
0: I'll get you man, I'm going to get you. Okay, not gonna. So have... I
1: shot So I shot him in the head. <laughs> Three, four, five times, I don't know, but I shot
0: him in the head. I was trying to shoot the knife out of his hand, man. <laughs> his, his hand, the knife was going like this. Look at the video. <laughs> shoot the knife out of his hand.
1: I have it on body cam, all right? Check the check out the video. I told him drop yeah. the knife five oh, times. Goodness.
0: Well, hey there Gen Xers. Ed and I wanted to introduce you to PackRabbit, our newest affiliate group. PackRabbit grew from one person's desire to craft a healthier and more efficient way to carry a pack. Now, PackRabbit is a small company made up of entrepreneurs, hunters, athletes, military, and outdoor enthusiasts. Their designs are influenced by diverse backgrounds and personal experiences that tilt them heavily towards simplicity and utility. PackRabbit believes that multifunctionality is not a condition of luxury, but an absolute necessity. One key aspect of several of their backpacks is a folding shelf that turns into a rather comfy seat when out on the trail. We invite you to check them out. The link for their website is in the show notes.
1: There was a case, I believe in Santa Fe, New Mexico. This was captured on video and there's a police officer responding to a restaurant, I believe. Somebody with a knife is literally chasing the police officer yeah. around his car two or three times and finally the police officers like boom boom boom. Yeah. I thought they were gonna burn the town down. Yeah. I believe it turned out the guy was a little mental, but how many laps around his police car does a, a police officer have to run fleeing from somebody with a knife?
0: Well, hey, we better get back on track. Okay, so the fundamental piece here is If you're a business owner, it's protection. It's making yourself a hard target. So there's a number of things you can do as an organization. Obviously, if it's just a small business, just install badge type of environments, lock your doors, make it so people can't get in and out. It'll also block out those solicitors that you don't want to bother with. Some other things, give some thought to a vulnerability assessment. You can, you can have a, a separate organization come in and do it for you. You can just do it yourself. You can have a friend come into my place of business. And, and if you have a friendly doing it, then you learn some things. But yeah. in addition to that, there's also some legalities. So if you're a mid-sized, larger organizations, you might have to consider including legal, including uh, compliance, things like that. Always got to remember and keep it legal so maybe perform some some penetration testing um some threat management what happens if and when the, an event like this occurs training employees on how to act during certain scenarios right right i was going to say you can
1: actually craft a policy on it and get if, yes. if you're the head or some type of leader of the organization and you don't know anything about it you can ask for a volunteer that might have some type of military law enforcement or security background help me study The legalities and the security situation and help me craft some sort of a policy so we can train our employees i think we're at higher risk for this we've done a risk assessment let's craft a policy and some type of training and um, education for our people
0: so at least they know this can help us mitigate and reduce the risk yeah making yourself a hard target and then if the event occurs that you have properly trained employees. One of the biggest things, I mentioned it at the beginning, you never know how you personally are going to react to a scenario like this. You could be just somebody who just lays on the ground and cries, who knows what you're gonna do. But if you've you've trained yourself and trained your employees for loud noises, at at the old church that I went to, there was a state police officer and he helped the church officials establish a plan for active shooters. He actually put us through training one Sunday. Then he said, okay, I'm going to be firing blanks, but I'm going to be in the back. You guys will all see me. Once you hear the gun go off, you all follow the right process to evacuate quickly, right? And so, and they trained us on how to do it. That's part of the training is just making people aware of what it sounds like, that it's not just a backfire of a car in the out in the parking lot. It's you'll hear pop, pop, or you hear pop, pop, pop. That noise, you'll be more familiar with the noise. And then of course, take yourself to a gun range, buy a gun, get trained on a gun, get concealed carry, whatever you can to be a a perp person who is familiar with these type of weapons and how they can affect others in the world. Yeah, I would
1: caveat onto that maybe tap somebody with some type of security background you kind of set some limits for them because i mean if you're talking to this former state police guy or former yeah. special forces guy and you say well, i want to make us a little bit of a harder target this guy is going to say well we need to construct a 10-foot chain link fence here with the concertina wire facing out and make a rabbit run and microwave beams over here so we detect any motion and then badge system. And you're like, <laughs> dude, we, we're operating the circle K over here. We don't need all that.
0: <laughs> we still want to be kind of welcoming we don't want to scare all the uh, attendees away for sure. Or customers. Uh, har- harmony and balance here, guys. Harmony and balance. The last thing he commented on related to training your organization is there are large security focused organizations, like as is, the GSX show, the ISC West and ISC East shows, they're t- generally tended for people in the security market, but average citizens can walk through those type of events. Usually you can get away with a $99 ticket, spend a day there, and you'll find out some of the coolest stuff and meet some of the neatest people in the security industry. So that, that's another way. And of course you can get online training from, for all of that type of stuff. There's a couple of other key things that I would point out here. One is information provided to us that was almost every assailant follows. Okay. I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but here's a quick rundown. There's that broad target selection, Mm -hmm. then the intelligence and surveillance on different, different targets. Then they have that specific target selection. Then there's a pre-attack surveillance and planning, and then the attack rehearsal. And, and that can be something as simple as I showed you the the snapshot of the video that we had the privilege of seeing of the assailant for the Stoneman Douglas school shooting. And he was in his backyard acting out what it would look like for him to hold a person down in execution style with his gun. He's not shooting. He's just acting out the, the scenario. So he is actually rehearsing what he's going to do. And somebody filmed him doing this. So every single one of them go through this process and there could be different time spans for that process. It could take a year, it could take two months. It could take a couple of days, but they all go through that process. There's this term, all of these are what all that, that process leading up to. Is what's called left of bang or what they these presenters refer to as left of bang bang being the day of the event that it occurs so this is really when we'd like to intercede as much as possible before people get into harm's way or are are subjected to the harm and And this is where we get into trying to look for all those early warning indicators right that's exactly right i'm not going to go through the whole list but There's a lot of those like increasing belligerence. They've got this fascination with weaponry. They're hypersensitive to criticism. They're getting a little more violent or they're even exploring some suicidal thoughts. And one of the very important points that the FBI guys wanted to make is these are all first or second amendment rights, right? Yeah. You can't just see a person is increasing their belligerence and then go arrest them and put them in jail. You can't see a person that's obsessed with weapons the last couple of years because of COVID and other things, I've been obsessed with weapons. Yeah. So if somebody just used that as an identifier, I would be in jail if that were a possibility, but that's a protected, right? The, The way he said it is we're looking for clusters of these type of things. So if you see all of those things and then somebody's starting to act out like killing animals or hurting people around them, then you start to go in strong with some mental health support. Yeah, Nat, this
1: is where we had previously a little bit of discussion on just exactly how many indicators and warnings do you have. I, When I spoke to law enforcement a few years ago on homeland security and homegrown violent extremists, some of the things are pretty glaring. I mean, the next thing you know, they've converted to Islam or something, and they're making videos where they've got the Al-Qaeda banner behind them and things like this. Uh, you're going to have the FBI on you like a cheap suit. Yeah. But uh, like you said, these are basic freedoms and rights Yeah. and they haven't broken a law yet. However, sometimes these guys make it pretty obvious that they're in a planning and preparation phase and do they have the training and equipment that you put it all together and there's obvious intent because... Mm-hmm. The FBI has made arrests in the past where it's not as much of a potential active shooter or mass shooter, but they've considered it potential terrorism. For example, uh, a few years ago, they arrested a Hezbollah operative in New York City. They were watching this guy and, and he was just surveilling potential targets. He didn't have a lot of these early warning indicators, but they still made an arrest on him for potential terrorism. There's another guy that's a former Marine, and and I believe he was in the Coast Guard and he was buying a whole bunch of weapons, if I remember right, a whole bunch of ammo. And then he came out on his social media and he said, AOC, Nancy Pelosi, all these other things. Next thing you know, that guy is rolled up. There's a certain line you cross where, Not only are you going to get the interest of federal law enforcement surveillance and monitoring of you, but you're probably going to get arrested. Uh, Unfortunately, if it's a potential mass shooting type thing, they haven't crossed that line yet.
0: I think that's probably one of the, one of the most frustrating things about these active shooter type of events. For instance, the, the fella down in Florida that shot up the school. There were six or seven different scenarios where the police were called on him and he had to go into talking to a counselor, but it didn't seem to fix the problem. It almost seemed to exacerbate the problem and made it worse in a way. If you're not going about it correctly, then it has the potential of causing even worse problems. But we as individuals and as business owners, I think the best thing that we can do is report it if we see something that looks strange out of the ordinary. Matt, there was
1: also the San Bernardino shooters and those guys had all oh kinds goodness. of red flags. Law enforcement may not have been as up on this as the uh, actual witnesses and victims and targets, mm-hmm. but obviously there was something going on there.
0: Now you the know, San, San Bernardino, that's the husband and wife. yeah And, and the they made it back home and they were killed in their home or something. So they actually had a little bit of an exchange of fire. Yeah, I mean the the
1: initial site and I believe they were trying to get home or something like that. But those guys, San Bernardino and the local authorities responded in my opinion extremely well. Yeah.
0: Okay, so we're shifting gears into the action portion preparation, action, recovery. You're in the middle of the situation. You're at the market, you're at work, you hear popping off of sounds. Okay, this is an event occurring. There's just a couple of areas that I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. First of all, is situational awareness. And I think you and I have talked about this a couple of different times. In this case, it is personal situational awareness. You are right. always aware of what's happening around you. And there's a, a graph I have that talks about these five levels of awareness, starting at the bottom, you're comatose, right? I'm not paying attention to anything. You're drunk off you're, your butt. You could be even like a asleep. Zero awareness. And then as you start moving up, you got tuned out, you're watching TV, Somebody's sitting there, lo- you see them all the time. Zombies walking around with their cell phones. They're looking down, watching TikTok videos instead of paying attention to anything around them that's tuned out. And then there's this level of relaxed awareness. And I think that's the area that we as informed individuals should live in on a regular yeah. basis. Yeah. You're not super stressed out about what's happening around me. You're not constantly targeting different people. You're not a Jason born spy kind of guy observing every single person, but You, you've got an awareness that there's a potential, then there's focused awareness. And that once you get to the top of the pyramid, it's high alert awareness. You are actively monitoring every single person, vehicle, building. I feel what happens in the middle of a scenario like this is if you're following this logic of relaxed awareness while you're at work, while you're at the market, and then something occurs, you immediately go straight up the pyramid. Right. And you start to go to high alert as quickly as possible in general. I'm, I'm just yeah. saying, in general, some people freeze and they never get to high alert. They just go, okay, I'm screwed.
1: And you know what, Matt? I think there's some people that will say this can be trained. And there's some people that say a situation happens and, and you can't train to respond to it. And I would say the latter is, in my opinion, wrong. You can be trained. As to a certain level yeah. of preparedness and awareness. And it's little things I can tell you right now what my pace count is. It, there's only so many times that you're going to do a land navigation course and march, you know, hiking or marching before in any given condition, you have a rough understanding of what your pace count is. Shooting type training, there's only so many scenarios, situational shooting that you can go through. There's only so much operational experience that you can have as a police officer military or something like that. And the the law enforcement guys, they say they had a lot of cops develop a sixth sense. And they say, I can't really explain it. I can't articulate it. Yeah, you actually can in your training and experience. You can articulate this, this and this were off that day, you were already on a call. You knew that this call was of this nature. You're starting to respond. Yes. So right away, you're starting to get into more heightened awareness. You're on a traffic stop. This guy ain't acting right. Something mm-hmm. you can articulate. It's not a, it, it is a kind of a sixth sense. It is kind of training and experience, but you can train yourself, even if you're not working in that kind of situation to get the experience consistently
0: all the time. This is great. There's this visual representation of this decision-making process that this guy, that this guy shared with us. And and I think it's to what you were just talking about. That is B-A-D, baseline plus anomaly equals decision. So if you're at a traffic stop, you're already at a heightened level of awareness. You're approaching a vehicle. Your baseline, you've done this hundreds of times or you've done this a number of times. Your baseline is I'm approaching a vehicle A person is nervous. I know they're going to be nervous. They all are, right? I know if I'm approaching at night, a woman's going to be a different nervous than a man would be. So you have this baseline. Mm -hmm. The anomaly is that person's hands are down around their hand and they're not nervous just perfectly still. That's an anomaly. The decision then is high alert because I'm aware something is not right in this field of view. Now, the example the guy gave was at the 405 in, in uh, LA, which is completely packed full of cars. You see a picture of thousands of cars that go on for miles, right? Yep. The anomaly being the same picture of the 405 with no cars on it. right? And a car parked off to the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And my decision being, I'm not getting on that highway. I'm going to get yeah. off this highway as fast as I can, because something's wrong. The point is, we all have this ability, this, this sense, and it can be trained into us. You will never be able to train yourself to understand what it will be like if, if you're with your child oh, or if you're with your wife in the middle of a scenario and they get shot. Let me segue into that real quick, Matt. Mm-hmm. It was about
1: six years ago. My brother and sister-in-law and niece were living in Albuquerque at a red light intersection. They had vehicles all around them, so they couldn't move. And they had to witness an Albuquerque police vehicle fleeing one way with some dude, a a civilian, shooting at pursuing cops with an automatic AK-47. This guy was apparently crazy. The cops got called on him. Cops got there. He has an AK 47. I don't know how, but eventually, by sh- some firing maneuver, he ended up getting in one of the Albuquerque police vehicles oh. and leading them on a chase. He ends up crashing into the corner convenience station right in front of my sister in law and her niece. At which time, police surrounded him. Yeah. And they witnessed. The police smoke this guy. They're stuck at this, like, you can't
0: prepare for that. That's the harsh reality of what's going on in the world. Here's the differentiator you're not preparing for that type of thing. When we're talking about training for active shooter events, you're not preparing for some horrible event. What you're preparing for are the sounds, the actions. I'm not saying to completely desensitize yourself to the blood and gore, but to recognize that there will be blood and to not completely freak out. So the other way of handling that, and we'll talk about this real quickly in the recovery part of it, is being able to provide first aid and medical care, being able to perform, stop the bleed with a tourniquet the proper way. There's different things that we can do so that we can see what it looks like for a leg to have a hole through it and us yeah. be able to wrap it and, and put a tourniquet on it, or for somebody to have a chest wound and put a chest seal on somebody and still be coherent. You can train for it, but you never know how you're going to react. So all you can hope for is that with all the training that you'll react more positively and have the mental capacity to respond well and recover faster. That's what it's all about. The last thing I wanted to talk about in this section, in the section of action is OODA loops, just to share real briefly about it. Air Force jet pilot from back in the mid seventies. He wrote a book on OODA loops and OODA being this process, this constant cycle that we go through in a challenging scenario to get us home safely so that OODA is Observe, orient, decide, and act. And it's not like it's one cycle and you go through that cycle and you're good. It's a constant circular motion that goes and it's overlapping. So you're constantly observing, oriented, decide, act, observe, orient, decide, act. And then eventually you would get to this point where realize that the assailant themselves are probably going through that same type of OODA loop. They don't know what it means they're observing they're orienting themselves they're deciding and they're shooting as they're walking through the the building the house of worship the school they're constantly unknowingly going through this OODA loop so you as a person challenging them your objective could and should be to OODA your way into intercepting their OODA loop to stop them from Making a decision and acting, you need to yeah. break their OODA loop and intercept it. If it means use the OODA loop to get you the hell out, then get out, right. get you home safe. That's it. That's all you're responsible for. You and the ones that you care about. Right. So, Run, hide, fight. You've probably heard that a thousand times when it comes to active shooters. But there's a new one. There is a new one. I don't, I'm not gonna say it's new. It's just a different way of looking at it. So run, hide, fight, you got anyone who's gone through any sort of active shooter probably went through the run, hide, fight. <laughs> there's even a movie about run, hide, fight by the uh, our friends at Daily Wire. Although the history of it is good many people when they hear run hide fight they think that's a progression they should first run then they should hide and then they should fight and that's not the way it works Mm -mm. it could be i need to fight now right it could be okay i'm gonna run so that i can hide
1: you can try to run and hide up until you're cornered
0: then you've got to fight you have no choice yeah right and and you think about the mental side of that. You're running, so you're a victim, right? In your mind, you're thinking, I'm a victim, I'm running, I'm scared. You hide, so you're a victim and you're hiding and you're scared. And then all of a sudden, you're going to break that somehow mental block of I'm a victim and you're going to attack this shooter. Mm-hmm. And that's just wrong. It's just not going to happen. A person who is in this victim mentality, they don't just click and change. Now, there is a different approach that I've mentioned a couple of times, and that's to avoid, deny, and defend. All active adjectives on what you're doing in the event, right? I'm actively avoiding this scenario. Whether it means I'm avoiding away or avoiding toward, I'm avoiding. Then I'm denying someone access to the room that I'm in. So I put a belt on the door handle and I lock it shut actively denying them the ability to get to me <clears throat> or the people that I care about. So avoid, deny, and then the last one is to defend, right? An active means of yes, attacking that individual, but basically you are defending yourself and all three of these are active involving you in the scenario. It's a subtle difference in the words that we're using and if you're constantly running through your OODA loop, and initially avoiding the assailant, you OODA the situation to the point where you're denying the assailant any access to you or the ones that you care about, and then as you're needed, you've ooda your way through the situation that there's no other alternative than to cause extreme violence on this person, then you go. Now, for- you, you might need to buy yourself a couple of seconds to get from point A to point B
1: so you You're behind cover and hopefully that saves your life. But when push comes to shove, if you've made that decision and you're at that final fight or flight step, you need to make sure that you grab everything you've got and you've got to make it a very violent, shocking force of action that you're going to take because that's once you've made the decision to fight. Now I'm not saying go haywire on this guy. Hopefully you're. Our, our audience is preparing themselves to fight a little bit too, because running at this guy going, ah,
0: that probably ain't gonna might help. scare them a little bit, but it's not going to work.
1: You want to train yourself to be able to physically confront somebody if you have to, as yeah. well. it's a sad reality, but it's a reality. You, you're going to have to learn how to fight a little bit.
0: Ed, for the audience, could you give a very quick rundown of the difference between concealment and cover?
1: That one's easy. So there's two concepts out there, guys, concealment and cover. This is something they harp on very strongly in basic training in, in the military infantry type schools, all types of other small unit tactics, CQB, SWAT, and law enforcement. There's difference between cover and concealment. Concealment means that you're just not in fight. You could just be wearing camouflage clothing and maybe a ghillie suit or something, and you're in the bushes. Although you're harder to see, once you're seen, you don't have any cover. You don't have any protection from, let's say a firearm. Cover means you're actually around the corner of a building where it's pretty solid brick or concrete structure. You're behind the front wheel and engine block of a vehicle. Those things provide you actual cover Mm. from bullets coming your way.
0: One of the things that I, I learned when I went through some, some gun safety, I went with a police department and I was fortunate enough to get involved with this small group of, of people, small town in New Mexico. And one of the things that I never knew, but it made all the sense in the world is cover. Because you see it in the movies all the time. If you see the police, they all pull up and they open the doors and they all stand there right there in the mm-hmm. in the doorway and they're like holding their guns in the in the window. Completely false. Most guns, at least within a certain distance, will go right through that door because it's just a very thin layer of metal it will go right through that. That's why Ed. That's why police pull up a certain way to when they pull you over is so that they know my quickest cover is just three steps back behind the engine block,
1: you know? And there's a psychological impact to it as well. One cop at the law enforcement academy was telling us he was involved in a shooting where the person, the subject he was confronting had a firearm on Mm him, and he ended up drawing out his firearm and grabbing, I think he said it was the, the trash can in the kitchen. And he held up the trash can in front of him and he was able to fire. And he ended up wounding the suspect, getting him down. And when he asked the suspect later, Why didn't you fire at me? He said, For a couple of seconds there, my brain said, He's got a shield in front of him. This guy looped, Oodle, and yeah. he bought himself a second for him to, to draw on his weapon because. The guy was drawn down on him. He had him dead to rights. And the first thing he thought of was trash can.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because in some of these more advanced gun safety training, and one of the first things they'll teach is get off target. If they've got you dead to rights, get off target. I remember when I was doing, going through some self-defense training, things like that, the the most immediate thing you can do when a gun's pointed at your head is you've got your hands up, right? Mm-hmm. You're in this, in this position, it's an instant to just yes. get a hair off. That's all you have to do because they take that first shot. Their natural thing is they they've hands on the trigger. They're going to pull that trigger. Right? right. But if you're off like this, it might miss. And that's the whole point is you just want to get to the point where you're into a position where you can start moving and causing damage on them. Right. Yeah. Cause they intend damage on you, right. Gun to your head.
1: I actually know uh, two or three people who've been in a similar situation and they put the gun, they put their hand in front of their face and they got their hand shot and yeah. got shot in the face. So yeah, it's hard to think about that. When you got a gun pointed <laughs> right at your face though.
0: I'm sure it is. There's no way you know how you're going to react in these type of uh, situations. Uh,
1: they actually train this in the academy and other schools in the military. You're training with a blue gun, blue gun and you're yeah. training on your unarmed and you're disarming somebody with a gun to your head, yep. you know, facing or behind you. And it sounds stupid <laughs> and you see it in a movie, but they train this way. They train, 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 and it actually
0: works. That's a really good point. And that's that one of the things that we, in our concealed carry uh, training, we use the laser guns, the ones that had the little laser inside of them and, and targets. And so we learned how to pull quickly, how to shoot, we were using actual guns that worked as if they were normal guns. After one day in this type of scenario, and I became so much more accurate with my shooting because with laser targets, I'm able to know where I'm shooting, what I'm shooting at. I'm able to draw. It was was really excellent training. Last thing we need to go into before parting shots, the recovery portion. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Okay. Not to get too personal, but have you ever been through any violent type of scenarios and in particular, what the feeling is like afterwards?
1: Not a mass shooter, but other violent things uh, where there's certain (laughs) recovery type considerations. In my experience overall, I mean, and I've I've gone through PTSD counseling as well. There's some things you once you've seen it or experienced it, you're just never going to get it out of your head. So there's just certain things that you just have to learn how to live. First of all, immediately after something happens, you're probably going to feel certain ways of certain things of the immediate adrenaline dump. And then the exhaustion that occurs Mm. right after that and your extremities your fingers they might get ice cold and you might have actual difficulty having a grip because with your adrenaline dump in the immediate occurrence of something that one moment of oh shit factor what happens is your blood goes from your extremities to your core after something happens and you've you you get through it and, and we're talking about more not immediately after but you're talking about the recovery you're gonna feel like the different people feel different things i think yeah. but you could feel this huge uh, sigh of relief you could finally exhale now you might see some some victims that didn't make it and you might at some point in time, start feeling survivor's guilt, there's a, there's a variety of different emotions that you can go through. And when you're in the, uh, after action and recovery portion of, uh, of a critical incident like this.
0: I can only imagine. I mean, the worst I've probably ever, ever experienced are more like fights. When you've been in a fight with somebody. And there is that adrenaline dump. They always talk about on talk about it on UFC, where there's this lactic acid builds up in people's muscles and they get so pumped up leading up to an event. And then afterward, I can't even lift my arms. That is this chemical reaction that happens to the body after the event. So there is a process of recovery from a physical and chemical basis. Now, again, I feel like there's a portion of that that can be trained out. They focused on two areas. One is providing medical aid and being right. trained, being fully trained and every year, every year come back and retrain yourself. Right. They, only, they only require you to be first aid certified every two years. Mm-hmm. I personally put myself through first aid training, CPR, AED, Naloxone. So there's certain training that I personally go through every year because I know I'm going to forget, right? Right. I would absolutely recommend it for anyone. Attend as much training in first aid and most of them are free. It's just like a weekend. So spend a weekend doing this and you're good for a year. If people can become more trained on that, stop the bleed is another big one. Super simple. Super, super simple, direct pressure, learn how to tie on a tourniquet. No, you can't use a tourniquet on the neck. They're really easy to understand, but if you can do them, you'll recognize even the good ones, they'll have a portion of a leg, just a little kind of dummy leg, and they'll have a little squirt of blood, red liquid coming out of it. And if you put the tourniquet on, right? Yeah then you're good. It'll also, what the uh, the other cool thing about this is blood spurting out. That means it's getting super slippery and it's really hard to get that tourniquet on correctly and tight if it's super slippery. So you start to learn and realize, I'm not gonna freak out at the sight of blood. It, that's some really basic first aid type of stuff,
1: especially with really very, very simple, easy acronyms that you can learn. So you can learn the types of bleeding, If if it's bright red and spurting, it's arterial, there's types of wounds. There's a, Mm -hmm. there's an acronym for types of wounds. There's an acronym for stop the bleeding, start the breathing, protect Mm -hmm. the wound, treat for shock. There's all kinds of very basic things that you can have memorized. That way, boom, is something, as soon as something happens, it's
0: easier for you to respond well and recover faster. I'd never heard the term you probably have, but a TAC med, you can get TAC med trained in a weekend as well, which is just tactical medicine.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure there's a variety of courses that even civilians can take that are related to TAC med. And if you're saying there's one that you can take on a weekend, I would suggest that you take at least a 40 hour basic first aid course first and then do your TAC med. Otherwise, you're going to do it all at once. I would say tact Med probably requires at least 40 hours of training because you're combining a tactical scenario, possibly even shooting. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. With medical first response or first
0: aid. Type so, so you don't want to be learning all this stop the bleed stuff. You, there's no way if you don't know that already, you're not going to go into a TACMED Med and know what you're doing necessarily.
1: Well, I mean, uh, if, when you say TAC Med, I'm thinking, Number one, you're going to be applying first aid, but it's going to be in a tactical situation where you might actually have to shoot and maneuver your way to the person that you need to provide first aid to. Yeah, and then while you're providing the first aid to them, if you're getting shot at, still, the harsh reality of it is you're not going to be able to uh, provide first aid to this person if you're dead. That's right. So you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to push this off to the side for a second and neutralize your threat and then apply there there's whole courses on that yeah absolutely uh, in the military i know if there's something in the civilian world that's similar and you're calling it tac med there might be different levels of it to where i would suggest you go through at least a 40 hour first aid first and yeah. then go through that tac med and then you're going to be able to put those tools together uh better i think
0: yeah yeah now again, the TAC Med is more of a if you feel led to get more advanced. All of the other stuff we listed previous: the stop the bleed, the AED, the CPR, and first aid, right. naloxon training. Even these are all super basic things that you can learn, and you can learn a lot of it online. You can't learn the physical applying tourniquets and things like that necessarily, but a lot of times what they'll have is, like you said, Ed, they'll have this this forty hour training that you can do online, right. and then you show up for a Saturday morning or a Saturday right. afternoon, and you go through the physical training to get your final certification, exactly, and then you get your little
1: card and you're good. Because you have to demonstrate to them the CPR portion of chest compressions, yeah, uh, airway, breathing, circulation, doing the Heimlich maneuver to possibly dislodge something, you yeah. should be able to do a nasal pharyngeal if required. You should be able to do at least a tourniquet and apply other dressings. You should have to physically demonstrate several of these, possibly up to an including basically sticking somebody with an IV if they need an
0: IV. Yeah, there's so many different things that we could go into. So the the second thing was, is mental health. And, and that's immediately, like you were just mentioning, there's, there's immediate effects like shock. But then there's also long-term effects like PTSD, anxiety, depression. I think training
1: can help alleviate or mitigate some of it, but you still have situations that when you actually see it, it's so unsettling, maybe not shocking, but unsettling. And once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. It just, it just sticks in your head. You can't get it out of your head. It's not maybe something you're going to think about every day. But when you do think about it, you're going to have those days where you're struggling, you're going to want to hit the bottle or something like that. So there's a lot Mm -hmm. of people that just start, they start resorting to alcohol. And for a lot of our Gen Xers, the reality of it is that you're most likely going to see an elderly man basically just pass away on the toilet. That occurs more frequently than people realize. And and you're probably going to see it sooner or later in your life. However, when we're trying to talk about training and preparing for mass shooting scenarios, planning and preparing and training yourself to provide that first aid and training, it helps. But when you actually see a real person, there's civilian resources out there for PTSD counseling. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of resources out there for you guys. If you endured or experienced something like that, that you can reach out there I'll try to research it and and let people know
0: it seems to make sense that even if you feel like you're okay, yeah just sign up for a little bit of counseling even if it's just a couple of weeks just sign up for some counseling so that you can talk through the scenario yeah. Get it clear in your mind what happened, how you responded, and not start to feel that survivor's guilt. I think it makes sense to do that just as a a default reaction to to any significant event like this. I guess one more thing. I didn't really talk about it too much. There was one point that was brought up, and that's back up in the action portion, and it kind of bleeds into recovery. And that is, there's the avoid, deny, defend. There's run, hide, fight. There's a fourth part of each of those options, that's tell. That's why I think the avoid, deny, defend works much better because you're actively doing something and interacting with all of the different players, the assailant, the other people who are involved, the building, you know, cars driving by. So if you're, if you're being active and you're observing and using your OODA loop, You also have the ability of capturing a lot more information. If you're just mindlessly a victim and you're running or hiding from something, you have no clue what's going on around you. So you're a useless victim at that point. When the law enforcement tries to come in behind or after the scenario, speaking of recovery, and they try to figure out what really happened, a person who has their wits about them, they can then be more effective in telling law enforcement what actually happened. Exactly. Or they or at least they have a clearer understanding of what happened. Law,
1: yeah, law enforcement is trained to try to get better details from you during an interview of of witnesses, but help us help you. Going back to that Jason Bourne scenario, he's sitting in the diner, he's asking that girl, I just don't know how to explain how it is that I I can tell (coughs) that guy's Eastern European, by the way, he's smoking a cigarette. And he's, he's about 265 pounds of chewed bubblegum and probably can't handle himself. Yeah. And I can look in the mirror and read that license plate over there. And I know that this altitude, I can run this far dead out without uh, breaking a sweat. And the, the, they do train you in a lot of that stuff. But they also train you to triage it. And there's a lot of stuff going on around you. let's say in Jason Bourne scenario, he should be able to say that dude right there. I know just by looking at him, he's from an Eastern European bloc country. He's probably former military and that tattoo on his arm. I want to know if it, I'm, I'm trying to get the details of that tattoo because i bet it's some type of Eastern European special forces or mafia tattoo. Yeah. those like, Does he have blonde hair, long hair? Does he have a flat top? What color of, of eyes does he have? What color, what? type and color of clothes does he have, height, weight, those are the kind of details as you're triaging.
0: I think that's a big part of, there will be this point in time when you'll be interviewed, not just by the the police that are on scene, but probably by detectives afterward and FBI and and other law enforcement agencies that want to come in and understand what actually happened. The only way they're going to know how to avoid this type of events in the future And to make sure more people get home safe after these type of events is if they can collect correct information okay let's go into parting shots we're almost done ed so do you want to go first or you want me to I will. i my,
1: mine is going to be really brief guys as a final thought on this, uh, episode that Matt and I have talked with all love and, and respect due to, um, all of our first responders and especially the law enforcement, federal law enforcement out there. As we, Matt and I have talked about this, there's a whole bunch of indicators and warnings and they can recur and it's still not going to put this potential threat on the radar of of federal law enforcement. It's not necessarily an FBI law enforcement or intelligence failure if something happens. So my key takeaway from all of this is that in my personal humble opinion, based on these trainings and experiences and discussions, is that you should not put all of your hope, faith, and trust in some external entity Yeah, come in with a a cape and fly in and and rescue you and save the day. You need to be trained and prepared yourself. And that's goes to the core raisin detre or our our whole reason that Matt and I are doing this type of stuff is so that you can be better prepared and respond well and recover faster.
0: Yeah. For my parting shots, I just wanted to impart a, a couple of different things, uh, Recall the acronym used for the presentation. That was Preparation, Action, Recovery. And the, for the preparation piece, a uh, couple of key points. Understand that it can happen in your place of business or house of worship, as it's happened to many other people. Commercial is the primary target of these active shooters. So do all you can to make yours. A place that is more of a hard target instead of a soft target. Make sure to prepare yourself and respond in the best possible ways. Get trained on those, those things we just talked about. Stop the bleed first aid, AED, whatever you can learn how to apply a tourniquet properly. You can screw it up. Establish ways to train your mind for those stressful situations, like getting actual weapons training buy a gun. You can do it in almost every state and then get get trained on it for sure. Go to the gun range on a regular basis. First time I ever went to a gun range, an indoor gun range, it's freaking loud in there. And that's with noise canceling headphones. It is loud. And you'll be able to start understanding the different sounds of different types of weapons and, and become... Again, I hate to use the term, but desensitize to it. So you're able to react and work well under those scenarios. All of these just to, to reduce risk and, uh, and prepare you better for the action section, I suspect most in our listener group are already familiar with aspects of the OODA loop if you're from military law enforcement, whatever it might be. Observe, orient, decide, and act. But keep in mind, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just your OODA loop, it's intercepting their OODA loop so that you can act appropriately and perhaps take out your adversary as, as you might need to. Yeah, they're going through that same cycle of, of thinking and the more you can interfere, the better. And then of course, the, we talked about the different levels of awareness try if you're in public to maintain that level of relaxed awareness so that you can quickly move up into a higher alert it's it's actually once you get used to it it's actually not that difficult to do you you seem a little antisocial i think sometimes i know i do to to when my wife and i are walking through a mall and my my head is on a swivel and i'm constantly watching and observing and seeing different people and how they're acting it's i'm relaxed i'm totally casual doing it but i am aware as well so Definitely recommend that you should have seen us in Egypt. I was like, (laughs) I can't imagine. And then of course the consider using the avoid, deny, defend, and then be able to tell afterwards. So speaking of recovery, get yourself some training as we, as we talked about earlier. The last thing I would talk about is many, especially those who have no train and therefore no clue, they may think of training as scary. It was actually brought up in the presentation I went to that a lot of people don't go through the training because they think their kids are going to get scared or that they're going to walk out of there scared to death. And, and they clearly don't understand the purpose of the training because most of these people who are from law enforcement or who are from the military, they do not want to scare people. They don't want to fill people with fear and anxiety. Most assuredly, their purpose is, is to bring up that level of awareness. So people are more confident in responding in these type of scenarios. No fear, it's more confidence. So with that said, we appreciate our audience. Thank you very much for listening. I really enjoy bringing this type of information to you all. So thanks for continually letting us be a part of your day. Anything else, Ed? Uh, just a huge thanks to everybody that's
1: listening to us and all of the support we get. And thank you, Matt, for all the opportunities.
0: All right, until next time, always remember, respond well, and recover faster. This is Matt Marshall, signing off. Ed
1: Watson, signing off.